morning, all. One sec to get set up here, but uh, thankful for uh, everyone for being here this morning and for the opportunity that I have to speak to you. Are you up and running? We are. <clears throat> I was talking to Michael before I got up here. We were downstairs before service started, and I asked him, you know, does this get any easier? And he said, yeah, just, you know, 3,000, 4,000 more times, and you'll be fine. So, uh, you know, on my way, I suppose. But anyway, uh, this morning's lesson is called Power in the Process. And what I want to convey is that there's really two ways to looking at success. You can measure success by the results of a given activity. And I think that's what a lot of us do. You know, at the end of whatever you were doing, was it successful, was it not? Did you get the result that you wanted? Or you can measure success based on the amount of work that goes into a given activity. And that idea is what I'm calling the process. Measuring success by what occurs in the actual doing, that is the planning, the doing, the work that goes into a given activity. And if we focus more on that process, I believe that we will be more successful. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Maybe. So, um, I would submit to you that we are a society that is driven by results to the neglect of the process. And I think that this has its day, this idea, if we take, for example, the sales field, right? It makes sense to me that in sales, not that I'm in sales at all, but it makes sense to me that in sales, your success is directly measured by how much you sell, right? That would be the results of your given activity, um, but if we take a field like education, the field that I'm in, it's a little bit more abstract. And I think that it's not always easy to measure the success um, of education simply by something like standardized tests. Now, I think that there's a movement right now to try to measure the success of students, to try to measure the success of teachers, simply by standardized testing. Um, I know that that's going into my... Uh, my uh, evaluations as a teacher, they call it SGP or whatnot. But anyway, there's this movement to try to do that. And I think that it's really a detriment because there's so many things that happen in the classroom, right? There's so many things that are intangible, that are uh, hard to quantify, that happen in the process of education. That can't be measured by some test that happens at the end of it all. Um, you know, there's the maturing of the students, there's the co cooperative learning that goes on between students. Um, you know, all these invaluable skills that are happening, we can't test them with just a simple test at the end of it all. And so, that's kind of where this, this idea for this lesson came from, uh, is looking at that whole idea in education. But I'd like to ask you, have you ever thought, or have you ever said this question about any activity that you were considering doing? What difference will it make? And I would submit to you that if you've asked yourself this question before, and I know that I have, and I'm sure we all have, that that kind of question is indicative of being overly results-oriented. 
Focusing only on the results, the outcome, to the neglect of the process. And so maybe uh, you can relate to some of the following. In voting, I've said this before myself, I'm not going to vote because I already know who's going to win, so it's a waste of time, the outcome is already decided, so I don't really need to go vote, right? Maybe you thought that before. Maybe when it comes to some kind of charitable organization, you think, well, uh, they're either going to get the money that they're not. My small donation is not going to make one, a difference, either you know, one way or the other. So what's really the point? What difference is it going to make? Maybe if it's some community service initiative, uh, and you can think you know, secular or church-related, what difference is it really going to make? I'm just one guy. What impact am I going to really have you know, in a global sense? What difference is my little bit of action really going to make? Maybe you said, I'm just being a realist. I've said that to myself before. You know, I'm just looking at the world practically. Practically speaking, I know I'm not really going to make a difference, so I'm just not going to do X, Y, or Z. And then there's the question, what happens when this kind of attitude bleeds into our spiritual lives? When we start to think, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z, because what difference is it really going to make? So here's a couple examples. Maybe you can relate to some of these, maybe not. But try to honestly assess if you've ever thought even a little bit along these lines. I'm not going to teach a class because no one really participates or listens. Now, I teach 14-year-olds for a living. I know what it's like to feel like no one is absolutely listening to you whatsoever. Okay? Um, so, but, you know, I'm, just, I'm not going to teach. I don't really want to get involved in that because I just feel like no, one part, no one's, uh, you know, giving anything back to me. I'm not getting anything. I feel like I'm not making a difference, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, we've done this before here. We've handed out flyers to try to get people to come to the doors. Um, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm not going to just personally invite other people to church because no one ever shows up. Right? I feel like kind of let down by that. No one shows up when I try to do that, so why bother? Right? It's not making a difference. Apparently, judging by the results, it's not making a difference, so why bother? Maybe cleaning up or helping out around the building. You know, it doesn't really matter. This is kind of the whole idea, like, I'm not going to make my bed because, you know, I'm just going to get in it again in a few hours, so why do it, right? So uh, it doesn't really matter. Why do that? Maybe I don't call or check on my brother and my sisters uh, because I think they don't really need me to bother them, you know? What, uh, what do they need me calling them up for, you know? They don't need that. Um, maybe I don't get involved in business meetings. I know we have business meetings today. Maybe I don't go to them because I think I personally, I'm not going to make a difference. It doesn't really matter. One extra guy in the meeting, one extra opinion, one extra voice, it just doesn't matter. Or I don't volunteer to lead any projects or initiatives that we have going on because, again, what difference is it going to make? Or maybe it's more personal for you. Maybe you can, you can relate to this, and I know that I have thought this. I personally won't be able to make a difference. You know, maybe that guy can make a difference in whatever it is. But not me. I can't make a difference. So I'm not even going to try. Again, I think that all of these ways of thinking are due to being overly focused on the results to the neglect of the process. And we probably have all heard this argument back to that. If everyone thought that way, nothing will get done. Right? Maybe you've heard that before. I have like some very environmental activist type friends, and that would kind of be their response to me, right? If everyone thought, thought that way, then, then nothing would get done, and the world would be a terrible place. And I would say that that is true enough. 
But that's not my argument to you this morning. This morning, rather, my argument is that there is inherent value in the process. Again, the planning, the doing, the work of it all, regardless of what the outcome is. Right? So, my first point to you comes from Ezekiel. You can be turning there. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 2. And I think that what we will see there is that God requires action in spite of the results. Again, you can be turning to Ezekiel chapter 2. Um, Ezekiel is called to speak during the Babylonian exile. Okay? He's given difficult messages um, to give to the people. They're condemning. Uh, there's, there's going to be construct, uh, destruction and all this sort of thing. Um, so he's not given a happy uh, message to have to send to the people. All right? We would say he's definitely sent into tough circumstances. And we see that in Ezekiel uh, chapter 2. And beginning in verse 3, and it'll go through chapter 3 and verse 11. And we're not going to read all of that, but I'd like you to just focus in on the key things that we see here. So I'll pick up in verse 3, and we will see that his audience, well, let's just get into it. Uh, verse 3, then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. We'll finish up through verse 7. You, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you. And you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. So a couple things that we saw here in that reading. There are rebellious people. They're stubborn. They're obstinate children. He tells them multiple times, whether they listen or not, go and send them the message. He tells them not to fear them. Don't fear their words. But go ahead and talk to them anyway. Even though he's sent into this seemingly hopeless situation, God says, no, that's what you have to go do. And it goes on, if we look in chapter 3 and in verse 4, God, speaking to Ezekiel again, would say, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Uh, sorry. Uh, unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. So again, we see some more descriptions of the people that Ezekiel is being sent to, that they're not of obscure speech and they're not of difficult language. They're people who should listen. You know, they know things. They're the house of Israel. And yet he tells them pretty point blank that they're not going to. They're not going to be willing to listen. And so the question that remains for us is, why? Why would God send Ezekiel to these people when he tells them up front, pretty clear I think, that they're absolutely not going to listen to you? It's not going to happen. And I think if we look at the people that Ezekiel is being sent to, I think we can relate a little bit. You know, being in the Northeast, being in this area... um, and we kind of look at the state of our society and our environment, I think that we could agree 
that people in the Northeast are generally highly educated, right? We're not surrounded by dumb people. Uh, we could say that, for the most part, this is a pretty well-off financially area, all right? Uh, people are progressively minded or open-minded, at least in some things, and yet it seems when you, you know, mention the Bible or mention anything regarding Christianity, those same open minds suddenly slam shut. So again, I think we can relate to the people that Ezekiel was being sent to go talk to. So I'd ask you this, do you ever feel like your task, your work, what you've been given to do as a Christian, is hopeless? And if we feel that way, if we feel that our task that we're given is hopeless, what do we do with that feeling? How do we process the feeling of being ineffective? Feeling like, what difference will it make? Like the work that I'm set out to do here is useless. And again, I think the answer lies in a shift in our perspective. And so I'd ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. chapter 3, what we're going to see is how Paul focuses on the work itself and not the results of, uh, of a given situation. And so we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 5. <clears throat> and he writes, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. You'll see here, Paul planted, right? I think the idea of Paul planted is he's the one who kind of lays the foundation. He's speaking to people who haven't heard the gospel at all yet. We see Apollos watered. He continues teaching to those people maybe that Paul laid the foundation for. But God's the one that causes the growth. God's the one that's in charge of, if you will, the results. Paul and Apollos are just doing the work. They're involved in the labor, in the process of it all. We would see in verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It doesn't say there that our reward is according to the results of your labor. It simply says that our reward is according to our labor. And it occurs to me that if my judgment is based upon my labor, and God is the one causing the growth, God's the one in charge of the results, then I don't really need to be too caught up with that, do I? Rather, I should be focused on, is my work up to God's standard? And we see that as we read on in verse 10. In verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And so rather than looking at the results, my question should be to myself, am I laying or building on a foundation that is Christ Jesus? 
Am I building with gold and with silver? Am I giving the best work that I can give? Am I giving it my all? Am I taking advantage of the opportunities and the talents that God's blessed me with? I think those are the more important questions that we need to be asking ourselves over simply looking at the outcome of the work. If we look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 17, I think this is amazing that Paul would say this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He pretty much says it point blank there. He's not sent here to be focused on the results. He was sent to do the work, to preach, and God will take care of the rest. We look back in verse 16 before that. He even says, uh, Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. That's amazing to me. Now, Paul would be so focused on the work itself, what he's been called to do, that the result of it all is not really even in his, his scope of things. I, I, maybe he's just saying, I don't remember who else I baptized, because that's not my job to worry about, the, about that. That's in God's hands. Now, I will say, though, uh, I'm not Paul. <laughs> and uh, I think it's natural to feel down when things don't go the way that you want them to go. Um, and you don't get the outcome, maybe, that you were hoping for. And uh, I think this is true in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I love this exchange that occurs between God and Samuel here. I'd ask you to turn there quickly to 1 Samuel 8. And the scenario here, I think you guys were just studying this in the, in the upstairs class, but the scenario here is um, Israel is asking for a king to be like the other nations. And, of course, Samuel and, and God don't uh, want that to happen. It's not a good idea. And they give all the warnings for why it shouldn't happen and on and on. But the exchange that happens here between God and Samuel over Israel demanding a king is what I want to look at. So in chapter 8 and in verse 4, we see that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now I see there that Samuel's doing all this work um, for God and with the Israelites. And his sons have not grown up walking in the ways of the Lord, so he's probably pretty, um, you know, unhappy, depressed about that. And now the people come and they want a king, so that's not going his way. And it would seem to me at this point, when Samuel said, or it says that Samuel was displeased, that he's got a lot to be unhappy about. Things have not gone the way that he wanted them, I would imagine, to go. And so look at what the Lord says in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You know, I don't think it's a stretch here to say that Samuel could have been feeling ineffective, to feel like he failed because of the people's demand. And I don't think it's a stretch because without Samuel saying those things, God says to him, unprompted, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I see in this exchange, it's as if God is saying to Samuel, it's okay. You did the work that you were called to do. And it's not your fault that things turned out the way that they did. As long as you did the best, Samuel, you did the best that you could, it's not your fault. 
And I think that that's all that God can ask of us. And so I would say, it's in God's hands. Just do the work. And now going back to Paul, and Paul's points to us that I was making before, I don't think we just see him saying them in 1 Corinthians, but I think we also see him living them. Uh, And we see that in what is called his first missionary journey. And so I'd ask you to turn to Acts chapter 13. And we're not going to go through the whole thing, I assure you. But we will look at a few highlights of Paul's first missionary journey. And I'd ask you so, um, and I'd ask you as we do this to try to put yourself in Paul's shoes as we go through some of the highlights of, of his journey here. So first, uh, Paul and Barnabas are called in, uh, in verse 2 of Acts chapter 13. And it says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And I think that this is important because it's not like Paul just went out and said, I'm going to try some stuff over here, try some stuff over there. It says that the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas to do this work. So this is the work, just like Ezekiel, that they were sent to do. And so, they set sail for, uh, for Cyprus, and we would see that in verses 4 and 5. Um, and what I want to look at as we go through each place that they go to is how successful were the results of their preaching. Well, the result here in, in verses 4 and 5 is not really recorded for us, um, so we're going to move on to uh, Paphos, still in Cyprus. And again, I'm, you can read this on your own time if you would like. I'm not going to go through um, reading all of these verses. But we will see here that a pro-council believes, and there's a whole ordeal with this magician being blinded. So there's a little bit of success if you're looking at the results only, right? Someone believes, we're told. Um, but once we get to Antioch, there's a little bit more detail given to us. Uh, we see here in verses 13 through about verse 40 that Paul is preaching to the people. To the Israelites. And it reminds me of the sermon that Peter gave um, in Acts chapter 2, where he's, he's speaking pretty bluntly to them, and he's telling them that uh, this Jesus you know, is who he said he was, that he is the one that was prophesied about, that he is the one through which you can be saved, and through him only, and not through the law of Moses, and, and all that sort of thing. And again, he's speaking pretty bluntly to them, and in spite of that blunt message to the Jews, we see that the people respond pretty positively in verse 42, chapter 13. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. That's pretty amazing, right? Paul's kind of speaking bluntly to them, and, and they say, you know, there's, they're begging for more. In verse 43, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So again, things are looking very good. And yet, in the next verse, verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. And were blaspheming. So just as things were looking so good, right? So good for Paul at the end of his sermon. Immediately after, not so much. You ever been in a situation like that? Maybe you're engaged in some kind of spiritual work, and things look like they're going to be going great, and then not so much. You don't get the result that you were hoping for. I mean, that can be a huge crushing blow to your spirit, right? But things just don't turn out the way that you wanted to. And yet, look at Paul and Barnabas' 
uh, Paul and Barnabas' reaction in verse 49. And the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout men, of, women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So things did not get any better. Verse 51, they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I would argue that the only way it would be possible to leave what had just happened to them and go away filled with joy and the Holy Spirit is that they're just focused on the work. They're focused on what they were called to do. And they're leaving the rest in God's hands. And really that's all all that they can do. We see a similar series of events occur in chapter 14 uh, when they get to Iconium. And again, we won't read through all this, but things start off positively. Um, But, again, things don't go Paul's way. Uh, The city is divided, and uh, there is an attempted stoning, and they have to flee the city. And they get to Lystra. And by the end of the, of the account there in Lystra, if we were to look down in verse uh, 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, so both places where things were not going well, uh, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. At this point, if I were to place myself in Paul's shoes, as I would ask you to do, you might be throwing your hands up to God and asking, why are you sending me here? What's the point? No one's listening to me and everyone's just trying to kill me. Wherever I go. But we see it's not Paul's reaction. In verse 20, But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul didn't react the way that I would have reacted, I think. I don't know that I could undergo that level of persecution and still be focused on the work of it all and get up, dust off my feet, uh, after just being stoned and go on to the work that was still at hand. Look at the language there in the next in the uh, in verses 26 to 20, 28. So this is kind of at the end of it all. We look in chapter 14 in verse 26 and 28. And again, look at the language. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. They're commended for the work, not commended or not commended for the lack of results. With the way things turned out, they're commended for the work. And in verse 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them. And how he, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Now it's kind of amazing to me too that after all that, that Paul could say or report all the things that God had done. And that God was the one that opened the door to the Gentiles. Again, that God was in charge of the results, and God was in charge of of how everything was going to play out, and all of that was in his hands. And Paul was just there to do the legwork, if you will. 
again, I still might be left asking, why does it have to be so hard? Why won't anyone listen? Why does it have to be like that sometimes? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I think we're going to see why the process has to be so hard sometimes. We'll pick up reading in verse 3. And not, only, <clears throat> and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit was given to us. A few ideas I would like to focus on here. We exult in our tribulations, which to me means we are able to glory in our difficulties, whether they are great or small, because of the following knowledge in the verse. The tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And the proven character, that's the idea of being matured, of being complete. Picture like a paper being proofread. We picture uh, a bread proofing, rising. It's matured. It's complete. And it's only after all of that process has happened that we have hope, a joyful expectation of what is to come. Again, all that occurs in the process of being a faithful, working, active Christian. And that's in spite of the difficulties and letdowns that we might face. We could also look back at the scripture reading, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. Picking up in verse 16. Again we see, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, we do not lose heart. Though we're facing difficulties, the realities of life in this world, though things do not go our way on pretty much a daily basis, we don't lose heart. And why is that? Because our inner man is being renewed day by day. You know, it's amazing here that Paul is able to say momentary light affliction after the things that he went through. But that's how it happens. The momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. The struggles Paul endured, the struggles that we will endure, um, the work that we are doing while living the life of a Christian, and all the problems that go with it, that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Now, undoubtedly here there's a reference uh, to, to heaven and God, but I think there's somewhat of a double meaning here um, where the things which are unseen are the slowly built, godly characteristics. Those things that are slowly built through our trials, through our tribulations, through overcoming them, the process of the work is where all of that stuff comes from. So we have to go through the tough times. We have to go through the tough times and overcome them in the process of the work if we're going to get to where we want to be. And so, we'll sum up this morning with a few simple guidelines. First, I think focusing on goals only leads to burnout. If I'm an overly result-oriented person, if that's how I measure success, 
I will undoubtedly be satisfied with the results. Because I'm, ne- I'm not always going to get the results that I want. And so undoubtedly, that's what's going to happen. I like this saying, just do the next right thing. It's really simple. It simplifies the craziness that goes on in my head. Just do the next right thing. Do the next work. Whatever it is that seems good to do, when God gives me opportunity, give it the best that I can with the talents that he's given me. I might not do on someone else's standard a great job. You know, giving a, a sermon this morning is not really like what I would call my bag of tricks, you know what I mean? Um, but I have opportunity and I'm going to give it the best that I can. And I'm going to let the results be in God's hands. And this last one, check your motives. Why won't I do X, Y, Z? Is it because I'm asking myself or telling myself that it's not really going to make a difference? Maybe I'm telling myself that I'm not good enough to do this thing. Someone else would be better suited to handle it. But again, that's just because I'm focused on, on the outcome of it and not in the, the work of it. I'd like to share with you a little story that uh, I think highlights my point. Now, we've been looking at like Paul and Ezekiel, and these were major guys with major tasks to do uh, from God. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's hard to relate to, right? I'm not Paul. I'm not gospelizing, you know, an entire region of the world. But it doesn't have to be that big, does it? You know, the work that we can be tasked with from God can be very small. August 24th, 2014, I've been very open with this, uh, about this with you guys. I got sober August 24th, right? And, uh, and started to make a lot of moves to try to turn my life around from where it was. And uh, trying to get back involved here at East Orange in some of the works that we do was intimidating, overwhelming. I had a lot of these kind of thoughts that I've been putting out here. Um, You know, I'm not really good enough to do these things. You know, I have all this baggage. Uh, Someone else would be better suited to do this. I'm not really good enough to do this. What difference will I make? On and on. I had all those kind of thoughts going on in my head that maybe you've had before, too. And uh, so... I was in a business meeting, um, and we were talking about putting pew ropes in the back three rows, which are there right now. Now, that doesn't really seem like a big task, right? Putting ropes in the last three rows of the pews. Uh, But it was a project, and it was a project that I thought, you know what, I think I can handle getting pew ropes in the last three rows. So I volunteered to take on that project. And a lot of things happened in the process of taking on that project. A, I decided they were going to be the best pew ropes that anybody's ever seen. Okay? And I think that they are. They have nice little signs hanging from them. It's nice thick rope, shiny metal pieces, right? So I was doing research most days, you know, to find those parts and where you could get them from and all of that. But a lot of things happened in the process of that. I became involved. I became, I became thinking about church, about East Orange, on a daily basis just because I was doing research for pew ropes. It's not a big task, but it didn't matter. In the process of that, a lot of good things happened. I had to talk with other people. I had to get monies approved to purchase things. I had to come here on a Saturday to put them in. I mean, the list of things goes on for just a simple little task like that, pew ropes. The blessings, for me personally, that can come out of such a little task like that are pretty endless. And I think that that's true for all of us. 
It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be a little, a little simple task like that. But getting involved and getting active, in spite of maybe the results, thinking the results won't be that big, is imperative to us personally. I'd like to leave you with one last passage. Uh, Paul, toward the end of his life, has this to say to his apprentice, to his friend Timothy, in, uh, in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Beginning in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, in spite of the results, right? In spite of everybody in, this, in our society, in our world, seeming to want something else, in spite of things not going our way, in spite of things not being easy, Paul says this in verse 5, But you, <clears throat> be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. That's the lesson for us. It doesn't matter if it's easy, if it's hard, if things don't go our way, if it's not the outcome we want, do the work. Do the work, the rest is in God's hands. This morning, if you've not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you have that opportunity to do so and, uh, and begin your life of service to God. And you also have the opportunity, if you need to rededicate your life to Him, uh, and ask for the help and prayers of those gathered here, you can do that. And ask whatever your need is, please come forward, as together we stand and sing.